Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia. I'm a 20-year-old loan officer from California. I started this podcast back in April 2020. Got furloughed from my job for about three months. And during those three months, I was very honest with myself. I was like, we can either start emotionally eating. We can start suppressing these feelings of not feeling worthy because you've lost this thing that you attach so much of your identity to. Or we could start that podcast that you've always been wanting to start. So I decided to go with that second option and I'm so glad I did. I've interviewed over 130 people since then. It's been incredible. I've got to interview music artists and seven-figure entrepreneurs and just all these incredible people with different stories and different ways of how they got to where they are and just hearing about their journey, hearing about their shit show moments because we all have shit show moments and just learning how to navigate them better and learning how to learn from them and take them and create something magical out of them. And I'm so glad that I get to interview all these incredible people and I am such a big believer that you can radically change your life in a year. You can just radically change your circumstances, where you're at. And I remember being 19 and just trying to get a job and applying to like, I was applying to Ross and like a smoothie bar and like all these places wouldn't take me. And I was like so offended. I was like, why is no one taking me? And then I finally passed my NMLS test and then I got a job with a major mortgage company. And I was like, oh, that's why they didn't take me because I was meant to go down and get this job instead of that job. And I went from being 19 with zero dollars in my bank account and just being so stressed about money and so stressed about like is it gonna come into my life do I what am I gonna do about this to being 20 year old with over 60 grand in savings and I think one of the big changes that I made between those two was even when I had zero in the savings account I still believed that I was abundant I still believed that money was gonna flow into my life I still believed in something that I couldn't see at the time because I knew it was just a matter of time before it was gonna come so I'm such a huge believer and you can radically change your scenario you can step into that next version of you and that next version of you that higher self version of you she's not that far away as you think i think she's just there's just garbage in the way and it's just undercovering that garbage that's in the way of you getting to her and just stepping into that and the next version of you with the next level of results it's something i'm super passionate about and i hope from this podcast that you get to hear these stories and relate with these people and just relate with like not necessarily like just reconnecting to that path of what you want to do and reconnecting to that higher version of you and what you wanted to be when you were younger and what lights you up and what brings you joy so i'm so excited for you guys to hear these episodes would love to connect with you on instagram my instagram's the shit show my 20s dm me and love to have a conversation and feel free to share this with someone you know will love it and you can also leave a review on itunes i would love that Today's guest is Johnny. I love chatting with him. Johnny is a 28-year-old suicide survivor, TEDx speaker, touring musician, mental health advocate, and the founder and CEO of Cope Notes. In this episode, we go into how he got into the music industry, the inspiration behind some of his songs, what inspired him to start Cope Notes, how he's able to keep his energy up for back-to-back shows, what it's like to not be able to tour anymore, and so much more what we should all know about mental health. So excited for you guys to hear this episode. Let's get started. So thank you so much, Johnny, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Love to know. Tell me about your 20s so far. Feel free to include any shit show moments, any crazy stories you'd love to hear. Let's start there. So I have pretty serious memory loss from an overdose of medication, unintentional one. 
So when I look back at my 20s, I it's kind of like a highlight reel of things that are not necessarily highlights, just like moments that kind of stick out. And I remember when I first turned 20, I was newly signed to a record label. So I thought like my 20s are going to be amazing. I finally signed to this label that I wanted to sign to for a super long time. And I figured, you know, I was working at Chipotle at the time. And I was like, here we go. Look out music industry. And then like two years into being signed, I thought that when you get signed, the label does all the work for you, but that's not true. So one thing that kind of sticks out as one of those moments that you mentioned is we were about to do the biggest tour we had ever done at that point. And we were driving out to start. It was a two month long tour, full North America. And it was going to be with by far the biggest bands we had ever toured with. And we drive out. We were driving from Florida to California. So we play a couple shows along the way. And we wake up one morning in a hotel and we get a call at like 7, 6 or 7 a.m. And the call is from our agent saying that the tour has been canceled. And we had thousands and thousands of dollars worth of merch. We had quit our jobs to go do the tour because it was so long that our jobs wouldn't let us leave. And then on the way home from the tour, a couple of our band members quit. They were like, just screw it. This is too much. And I remember having kind of one of those moments that I think a lot of people have had in 2020 where we were like, 2020 is going to be our year. And then 2020 got turned upside down. I think that's how I felt about my 20s. Like, I'm going to grab the world by the horns. And then half my team quits. And I'm like, oh, what do I do? So that's definitely a moment that kind of sticks out to me in my early twenties where I realized that not everything is within my control. And how did you deal with that? Like, did you want to stop performing? Did you want to just say, you know, I'm just going to quit. Maybe this isn't supposed to happen. What was your reaction to that? I wanted to explode because I couldn't believe I, I had so much hope and momentum built up, but then I was just as frustrated with my band members for quitting because now basically the tour was like, you can't be a band. And then now my band members are like, we can't be a band. I'm like, no, no, no. So I was in the middle. I picture myself between these two buildings that are collapsing and I'm trying to hold them both up. It was, you know, I think I've gotten a little bit better at letting things happen the way they are going to happen. But I have a habit of trying to do whatever I can to keep things from falling apart for better or worse. And I was definitely not ready to let go of the tour. Like by the time we got home, still in my head, I was hoping every morning I would wake up and get a call from the agent that's like, hey, you can, you know, we're going to do half of the tour and you can come back out. But that never happened. And did you get your band members back or did you have to rebuild? We had to get some new band members, which was weird because we had all been playing together for a while. And being in a band with somebody and touring you kind of become family like you're spending 24 7 with each other literally no alone time and like for months and months for years on end so it was it was weird to sort of invite strangers into the fold and be like okay now we are family it was very odd how did you get into music what was the start for you so when i was younger my older brother and younger brother were definitely like guys guys they were like let's play football and you know we're gonna drive trucks and talk about girls and I was like 
sitting with my guitar or like a pen and paper drawing. I was always very drawn to creative things. And when I was younger, probably when I was like six or seven, I used to have this FM, like a boom box. And it was sitting on the floor in my bedroom. And whenever my brother would leave the room, so it could actually be quiet in my room because I shared a room with my brother. So whenever he would go out and it would be quiet, I would sit in front of the radio, turn it on to whatever rock station there was, and then stare at the speakers and just like imagine myself on stage performing. I I didn't even know what it would look like or what it would require of me. But ever since I was a kid, I wanted to make music. And I think when I was freshly 16, yeah, because I drove to audition for a band and I did a terrible job. I auditioned to sing, even though I was a guitarist and I did not know how to sing. They told me that they didn't need a guitarist. So I was like, okay, what do you need? And they said a singer. And I was like, I'll try. So I did a terrible job and they said, well, no one else auditioned. So (laughs) you can join the band. And then I played my first show in like January or February of 2009. And I did a bad job and I was terrified. And I can't believe that I still play shows now because my first show experience was just mortifying. Did you teach yourself how to sing? Do you, right now, do you sing or do you do mainly guitar? I sing, which is a big surprise to me, especially I grew up with like crippling social anxiety. Like I was so scared to to talk to strangers. I was very scared of public speaking. I had difficulty communicating on a regular basis just because I had really bad OCD. My bipolar was getting a lot worse, very serious anxiety. And my schizophrenia was starting to develop around middle school was when it was really starting to become an issue. So by high school, I was like, I don't want to get on a stage and have a microphone. I felt much more comfortable playing guitar. So vocals were a stretch for me. But now I... Yeah, I had to teach myself everything. And it was just because that was what that band needed. Like sometimes I wonder if I would have maybe contacted a different band or a different band was looking for members and they needed a guitarist or a drummer. Because I feel like I would have learned any instrument in order to start making music. And how did you get past that social anxiety and step on stage? I think it's just repetition. Like, so if you could, if you could rank a social anxiety on a scale of one to 10. And then you could rank my desire to make music on a scale of one to 10. I think my anxiety was at a 13 and my desire to make music was at a 13.1. So it was like just pat. They were both through the roof, like both my anxiety and my desire to make music, but I wanted to make music just a teeny bit more than I didn't. And I just had to like, every time we booked a show, it was kind of bittersweet. I was like, yay, we get, oh no, we get, well, yay, oh no. And I just had to like wrestle with it over time. And eventually I did become more comfortable. It's just like, not to be cliche, but it it is a lot like riding a bike or anything else. Like your, your brain and your body eventually adapt and it becomes muscle memory. So, you know, now I'll play when we tour, when the world doesn't shut down, we'll do like 60 shows in a row. And every time I get on stage, I'm like comfortable, excited, looking forward to it. And I never get nervous. And I just remember like you can probably, if you 
dig into the internet rabbit hole far enough, you will find videos of me performing in 2009. And I'm staring at the floor of the stage instead of out into the crowd. I'm pacing back and forth. I can't make eye contact with anybody. And it's like so brutal to watch. Um, The desire to create music, where do you think that came from? From not being able to communicate effectively outside of music. Like I was really bad at conversation, I feel. I had difficulty expressing myself, but writing, like sitting down with a pen and paper and being able to like write a poem or a short story or being able to write a chord progression on my guitar. For some reason, I kind of felt like, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this who are listening. I kind of felt like a Martian or something where I was speaking my home planet language. And then I would try to speak it to humans. And they were like, what the heck are you talking about? You freak. But then writing music or stories was kind of my way of translating what I was trying to communicate into the language of other people. So I think it just afforded me the ability to communicate with people in a way that regular words didn't. And what's your writing process look like? Well, when I was just so for context, for people who are listening What they probably don't know about my background is I lived with very severe mental illnesses for my entire life. So I've only been on the healthy end of recovery for a handful of years. So for the first like 10 or 20 years I was writing, it was a long, grueling, uncoordinated process where I would spend three or four months on a single song. And I just couldn't, like my OCD wouldn't allow me to keep a line or to finish a song. I kept having to go over it and over it and change stuff. And I thought I was just being a really good songwriter. But in fact, I was like, my illnesses were holding me back. So I think before I would have to go over something for literally months. And keep in mind, it's like a three minute song. And I'm just chopping and screwing and changing and editing and balling up pieces of paper and throwing it in the trash can. And now as I'm healthier, it, I can write a song on accident. Like when I'm in the shower, I'll write half a song or I'll go on a walk and I'll come back in an hour and the song is written. Like it comes so much more naturally to me now. And I think it's because I have less like mental noise. And how are you able to tune out that mental noise? Well, there's a couple ways. I think first, One thing that I use is music. So I will purposely, I have like a calm down playlist on Spotify that I made that I will turn to if I get really stressed, but pretty much any music I turn on will take precedence. So if my mind is really scattered, if I put on music, it gives my mind something to focus on. Like when I work, I am listening to music. When I ride my bike, when I exercise, I'm listening to music and it picture your brain picture my brain, like a hundred people who are watching a hundred different TV channels at the same time. So you're hearing a bunch of overlapping chatter. And then when you put on music, it's kind of like all hundred people in my brain to turn on the same channel. So it gives them all one thing to focus on. And that's really helped me. But another thing I've had to get good at is interrupting my brain. So if I'm starting to feel that mental chatter come on, I can get pretty good at kind of 
giving myself a talking to and like going inside my brain and be like, all right, guys, listen, everyone is on different pages right now up in the control tower. I can't understand what any of you guys are saying. So you either need to, everyone needs to get on the same page or I'm turning off everyone's TV for 10 minutes. And I have to be like my brain's dad. Like I have to come in there and wag my finger and be like, you guys need to get your crap together because I can't think. And it takes a while to, you know, when you grow up with diagnoses, you think that your brain is you. And when you get a little older and go through treatment, you realize that your brain is a part of you, which means that you are separate from your brain. So you can go in there and be like, listen here, brain, I'm not going to put up with this. It just helps to have that line of separation. And do you have a favorite song that you've created? Yeah, but it's not released yet. (laughs) As for released music, I don't know. I am not sure what my favorite song would be. That's a good question. Can you share maybe some of the stories behind some of the songs you wrote? Yeah. So, for example, one that comes to mind. So the band is called Prison, if I didn't mention that before. And... We have a song called Mental Illness, which seems kind of on the nose, but let me explain. It's about this interaction that I had with a band that was much bigger than us. And their vocalist had written a few songs about self-harm and suicide. And a bunch of fans were sending me messages like, hey, you should go talk to that person and just kind of you know, since you do peer support and mental health stuff, maybe you should reach out and kind of listen and see if there's anything you can do to help. And enough people sent me those messages where I was like, that's it. I'm going to reach out. And that band was happening to come through on tour to Tampa where I live. And so I was like, yeah, I'll go see him and start a conversation. So I drove out to the show and wait all night to speak to this guy. And I'm out behind the venue and I'm like, yeah, so just kind of what's been going on I shared a little bit about who I am and my background and I kind of like opened the door for him to maybe talk a little bit about what he was going through and he goes oh I'm not like actually suicidal or I don't do any like I'm I'm fine I just write about that stuff because kids really like it like it sells a lot of records And I was like, oh my word this is this is the part of the music industry that I didn't want to see that people will sort of take something that people like me live through every day and kind of manipulate it and commodify it. So that song in specific is about how it felt to find out that someone else is using, you know, something that has almost killed me and has almost ruined my life as like a fashion statement or something to, to make money. So that was, I'll never name the band and I don't have, any beef with the band or anything it was just a very ugly realization for me so that's one i can do more but each song definitely has a story behind it and what's the story behind the name prison so picture an actual prison let's say you were in prison for 20 years because you stole a piece of cheese or something and you spend almost the entire day in your cell you have this little, I don't know how the square footage, but let's say it's an, a 10 by 10 square foot or a hundred square foot room, 10 by 10. And you spend almost all of your time in there, like bouncing off the walls, just pacing, laying on your bed, standing up. Maybe you like drum on something or read or write, but you are kind of going crazy in there. You're just like so cooped up and confined. But then 
for a half hour or an hour, you are let out to go like for rec time. So you're playing cards in the cafeteria or you are watching TV or you are playing basketball or lifting weights or something. And I've always viewed the stage and making music as my hour outside of the normal internal overlapping chatter that I mentioned earlier. So a lot of people stay stuck in their head most of the day. And I've always seen music as an opportunity to sort of get out of your own head for a little bit and just enjoy rec time so you don't go completely crazy. So the idea behind prison is that the name prison is that you shouldn't spend all of your time in your cell. You need a little bit of time outside of your cell. And for us, that's music for you. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's flying a kite or collecting stamps or whatever it is that makes you feel like you're not stuck. And tell me about being on stage, doing all those shows back to back. I'm sure that takes a lot of energy. I'm sure you have like routines, stuff that you do to make sure that you're optimal for those performances. What do you do to set yourself up for those performances? Mm, Like the whole day is about the performance. So I think fans are like, what? They only work 30 minutes a day. (laughs) It's like, no, the entire day is about that 30 minutes. And for example, so on tour, I typically don't drink anything carbonated or sugary. So I almost always just drink water and that's to keep my throat healthy on tour. I obviously don't drink or smoke or do anything like that. If there are any touring musicians or vocalists out there who drink or smoke, I am baffled. (laughs) Uh, I encourage you to stop drinking and smoking and just watch your vocal performance transform. But also we, we work out every day on tour. We stretch. I, I stretch for almost a half hour before I play. I do pretty extensive warmups. And honestly, a big part of trying to make sure that you feel comfortable on stage, at least for me, is talking to people at shows. Like, so we, let's say we play at eight o'clock, but doors open at 5.30. So you have, I basically have two hours before I have to warm up where I can just talk to people and get comfortable, get to know the layout of the venue, get to know some of the people at the show, their local culture and how they talk, the kind of music they listen to. And by the time you get on stage, you feel so comfortable with these people because you've been talking to them for two hours. They're not strangers. It's like, oh, that guy's name was Zach, I think. Right. And then, yeah, you're married to Teresa, I thought. And just kind of getting a lay of the land helps me feel really comfortable on stage. But also a lot of the prep takes place before we even leave for tour. So I do training for like two months before I leave for tour to make sure that I can perform every night. So it's like, I'm telling you, when you tour, your entire life is about touring. Either you're prepping for a tour, you're on tour, you are debriefing from a tour and doing like merch counting and balancing your books. And then you're booking and prepping for a new tour. And how do you balance that from going to tour to tour and like going back and then for the next one i don't really know one thing that i do on purpose when i get home from a tour i leave my luggage out for a day so i don't put any of my stuff away for an entire day and that's to allow myself not to rush back into home life to kind of decompress and i do this every tour for over 10 years i've always done this i leave my luggage out for a whole day and then when i prep for tour 
I try to not do any packing until the night before. So it's, it's kind of a mental thing. I want to allow myself to have tour and I want to allow myself to have home life without letting them bleed into each other too much, which is difficult. But I think it's important to try not to like rush into the next chapter, but kind of have this little bridge. But honestly, when you're home and you have a tour book, it feels great to be at home because you can enjoy everything because you know that you won't be there in a month or so. But during COVID, obviously, all of our tours have been canceled. So being home without having another tour booked is a very weird feeling for someone who's been traveling for over 10 years. And your band members, are they like your best friends? So I would say that it's different. Like if you, like I trust them with my life. We have been through so much crap together. We've worked so hard together on the same goals that I don't even know that you are friends at that point. You are like a different category. It's like a friend, a best friend, a coworker, or, you know, in, in many ways, a lot of people have said that being in a band is like having five girlfriends or four girlfriends or three girlfriends, however many people are in your band. And it is a lot like that. You have to plan around everything, <laughs> like every plan that you make has to incorporate what they want. You have to come to consensus, but all in all, the level of closeness that you feel with people that you spend that much time with, like you, I don't know that you are friends, but you are some category of social connection where everything you do is in the best interest of those people because for months at a time, you are the only people that you see. And what did your journey look like starting Cope Notes? And what is Cope Notes? So Cope Notes is a digital mental health platform. And for people who aren't familiar with it, we use daily text messages to improve mental and emotional health. And I launched Cope Notes a couple of years ago, and it was actually just a project. It was just kind of a volunteer project that I thought would help people. And slowly it started growing actually fairly quickly. It started growing to the point where I had to quit my job at the time and pursue it full time. And now like during COVID, because we're not touring, I have been like 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week on cope notes. And it's been growing very quickly, but I never, ever set out to launch a startup. I never was like, I'm going to own a company. It was just one of many volunteer projects that I've been a part of that just happened to grow quickly enough to become a company. It kind of took on a life of its own. And what do you think it was about it that made it grow so fast? Well, I think a majority of mental health tools are not easy to use or they're like very, they consume a lot of time or they're inconvenient in terms of like scheduling appointments or they collect private information, like personal data. And because Cope Notes is none of those things, that it's really easy. It doesn't require a lot of time. It's completely anonymous. I think that alone allowed people who maybe would not use other mental health resources to try Cope Notes. And also, I think it's one of the only mental health resources that is designed to help people living with or without diagnoses. So someone like me who has multiple diagnoses, I use cope notes religiously. And then there are people who have never been diagnosed with any mental or emotional health issues whatsoever, and they can use it too. So I think there's something about the ease of use 
and then how universally helpful it is across demographic that has made a big difference. And what type of messages do you guys send? All kinds. Uh, if you go to our website, copenotes.com, right at the top, there's like a week's worth of text messages that you can read through. So anyone listening to the show can go check them out firsthand. But right now we have a basically this living library of content and there's you know, psychology facts and exercises and advice and encouragement, and journaling prompts, like all sorts of different messages where basically if you're subscribed to Cope Notes, you never know when we will text you or what it will say, but you know that whatever the text is, it's written by a peer with lived experience. So we have that peer support built in and it's reviewed by a panel of mental health professionals to ensure that we're not just texting people like smile or something, you know? <laughs> And when you got your diagnoses, how would you not let that determine what you could and couldn't do? For a while, I did. I just like started excluding myself from stuff because I didn't like the words. Like schizophrenia felt like such an ugly word to me. I felt ugly. Bipolar, oh, I had such negative connotations for all of these terms. And I kind of just started, I like, started slinking away from social interactions and just trying to shut myself in because I didn't want anybody to find that stuff out about me. I was so embarrassed and so freaked out. So I'd be mortified to know that I like speak on a stage about this stuff now. But after a while, you start realizing that, and this was not immediate. This was after years. I want to emphasize this after years of treatment, like being in treatment, taking medication, seeing a therapist regularly, doing the homework, even going to school for psychology and learning about these diagnoses. After all of that, you start realizing this is just a detail of who I am. Much like, you know, I love supercars. I love, I'm really interested in sneakers. I collect sneakers. I love metal music. I have schizophrenia. I like riding my bike. Those are five facts about me. And for some reason, we take the schizophrenia fact and we turn the volume up to 11. Like that's the most important one. It's like, no, I just told you I love supercars and I like bike riding. And come on, how, how on earth is schizophrenia a different tier of fact? And I think we make it that because we're scared of the terms. But the more that people open up and do advocacy, the less afraid we are of those words. And what is schizophrenia? It is really difficult to explain firsthand. I'm sure you could Google it, but I'll say this. This is kind of what I've told people who asked me what it was like. And this is just for me. I'm not giving you, I'm not a clinician. That's the qualifier here. I will say that for me, schizophrenia was not having the ability to discern what is real life and what is not. So if I had a conversation with somebody, after the conversation, I would wonder if I actually had the conversation with that person, if that person was real, or if I imagined them. So that's kind of a, a rudimentary, simple explanation of what my day-to-day -day life was like. I was constantly questioning whether my experiences were genuine and real and objective reality, or if they were a part of my hallucinations that felt so real that I was tricked. And what's something that you wish people knew about mental health? That mental health applies to them. I feel like everyone I talk to talks about mental health in a way that makes it sound like it only applies to other people. Like if I ever do a talk, 
like I'll, I'll speak at a conference or something. I'll give a keynote and people will come up afterwards and say, oh man, you know what? I wish my wife could have heard this or, oh man, my coworker, I'm going to like send the video of this to my coworker. And no one, I shouldn't say no one, but probably only half the people in the audience say this was important for me to hear. The other half of the people say, oh, my my brain is fine. It's everyone else's brain that really needs help. And that mentality is why the suicide rate is so high, why people are self-harming, why people are abusing substances, because we pretend that we're fine and then we ignore our behaviors that are unhealthy coping strategies. Like if I could cram one message into the ears of every person on the planet, it is mental health applies to you, whether you live with the diagnosis or not, whether you think it applies to you or not. If you have a brain inside of your skull, if you can hear my words right now, that means you have a brain. And if you have a brain, that means you need to take care of it. Can you go into the story behind your tattoos? Well, there's definitely not one story. I, well, I'll, I'll try to generalize. So I was the kid in elementary and middle school and high school that would draw all over his body with markers and whose parents would be like perplexed and mad. But I've always wanted art on my body. I'm a big fan of art. I like looking at and admiring art. I like making art. So the idea of putting art on your body is like a no brainer for me. Like, of course I want to do that. What are you talking about? Look at all this blank real estate on me. So I've wanted tattoos my whole life. And I, when I started getting tattoos, I didn't have a game plan. I kind of just was like, I want to start getting tattoos. And I had a big long list of tattoos that I wanted. And over time, I think I started kind of developing a theme. So like on my right arm, I just have nightmares. And the the thinking behind getting nightmares tattooed on you People always react like, what? Why on earth would you want to remind yourself of something so negative? And I had night terrors growing up, like very severe insomnia and sleep paralysis. Very, very, very severe for years. And I was in, I was doing exposure therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT for the nerds out there. And I knew that if I saw my nightmares more often, there was a chance that I would be less afraid of them and they would just become a little bit more a part of my normal life. If I turned my nightmares into art and then wore that art and saw it on my body every day, I would become less afraid. So every time that I would have not just a random nightmare, but like a recurring nightmare that would happen for months or years at a time, I would turn it into art and get it tattooed on me. And now I don't have nightmares anymore. Like last night, I had a dream that Jim Carrey and I were living in a camper in a parking lot. And we went to this restaurant where they let him bring this huge dog in. And this dog was like eating tapas. That was my dream last night. I don't know why, but it sure as heck isn't a nightmare. So my tattoos have helped me very much in that way. And then other other places on my body, I have tattoos that are reminders. Like I have a gratitude checklist on my forearm to make sure that I say thank you for 10 things every single day. And I do that to this day. So you could pick any tattoo on my body and there's a whole story behind it. Even on my nightmare arm, each individual part of the tattoo has a specific meaning just because I love art and I love the idea that you can communicate a lot with a tiny little picture. 
And do you actually draw them yourself? If I did, they would look way worse. I drew a lot when I was younger. I more so do like graphic design today. So I can make something on the computer. But when I was younger, I had some drawing skills that I kind of traded for guitar. The more I played guitar, the less I drew. So I go to a great shop called Momentum Tattoo in Tampa, and they have done almost all of the work on my body. Did they hurt? (laughs) I think you can answer that question. I get that question all the time. (laughs) And I always tell people, If anyone tells you that someone sticking a needle into you for like 10 hours straight doesn't hurt, then they're, they have like a biological problem, like a neurological, (laughs) there is an issue with their body. Of course it hurts, but it's always worth it. Like to look at my body and see tattoos from 10 years ago where I was a completely different person. I look at tattoos that I've gotten maybe two years ago and I can see that difference in myself. Most people forget how far they've come and they forget to be grateful. You know, like I remember, it's like, why am I compassionate for people who are suicidal? Because I remember what it was like to be suicidal. I am not right now, but I remember what it was like. And I think a lot of people get better. They heal from a situation and then they just kind of live in the in the version of their life where they were never like that. And as a result, they don't exercise gratitude. Like, for example, I believe in Jesus, which shocks me. I never expected to belong to any faith at all. But because of my, because I remember who I was before I met Jesus, I love people who don't know Jesus because I'm like, wow, I was literally... All of the stuff that you're saying about faith, I said, I totally get it. I understand all your objections and I want to be your friend. Like tattoos help me retain compassion for my younger self. And I think a lot of people just try to trade out and never look back. What's something that most people don't know about you? Hmm. Well, a lot of people don't know that I'm a Christian, which is funny because I have a cross tattooed on my face. I don't know how you missed that. But probably another thing that people don't know is that I really, really love soft music. Everyone thinks that because I am in a metal band and I scream on stage that all I listen to is like the super brutal music. But I I play classical, like fingerstyle guitar all the time. I listen to a lot of really slow, soft, sappy music. I listen to pop punk. I listen to rap. And I mean avidly. I don't mean like when someone says, oh, I listen to everything. And you think like, no, you don't. (laughs) I listen. I purposely will go through phases where I'll listen to soft acoustic music for like weeks at a time. And I can't listen to any metal just because I'm kind of in a phase. And I think that would surprise a lot of people. But if you think about it, nobody is one note. Like nobody only likes one thing or only does one thing. Everyone has a dynamic personality and set of interests. And what is something you're learning right now? (sighs) Mm -hmm. That I don't know what the heck is going on. So I had a plan for 2020. Obviously no part of my plan came to fruition, but still a lot of good things happened. So I think I'm learning that you don't have to know what's going on in order to, in order for good things to happen. Like you, it's in your best interest to just be good at adapting instead of good at planning, you know? And what is something you're excited about right now? Well, 
I am praying that the vaccine checks out so that we can go on tour again, because 2020 was the first full year of my entire adult life. First full year in 13 years that I haven't played a concert. And right now we have a tentative tour booked for August. Now we've had plenty of tentative tours booked for 2020 and 2021 so far that have been canceled, but I'm holding on the hope that we could tour again later in 2021. If that happens, I, I can't explain the joy that it would bring to so many musicians, not just me. We miss it. What's something that makes you feel alive? Music. <laughs> I know that's probably kind of a phoned in answer, but I'm telling you, you know what? I'll say this too. Not only music, because a lot of people probably saw that coming, but also lately I have been, because everything's been shut down and your options are kind of limited, I've been going on walks and purposely walking very briskly, like kind of, kind of fast walking, you know, and listening to a podcast or a video or a lecture or something that gives me something to think about, like you know, philosophy or something. I've been listening to a ton of philosophy lectures while going on these really fast walks. And it kind of feels like an oxygen boost to your brain where it's just helping give you this outside perspective. And then I come back from that walk and look at all my problems that I still have and think, oh, I can handle all this because you've had this like big perspective dose. And do you choose like a word for every year? I don't, should I? Well, if you were to choose a word for 2021, what would you want your word to be? 2021. Finally. That's that's what I'm gonna that's what I'm gonna choose. I, I wanna at the end of the year I wanna say, wow, finally I was able to do those things that I have been praying to do and trying to do for so long. I want this to be the year of fulfillment for sure. And if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20-year-old self, what would you tell him? That you are wrong. <laughs> so I was like, if I, I, when I was 20, I would bet you, I would bet you my life that things would never get better, that I would never feel healthy, that I would never have healthy relationships, that I would never make a difference in the world or get to do what I want to do with my time, that I would never be free from, from my debilitating illnesses. And I would just go back and say, you're, you're wrong. You are totally wrong about everything. There will be a day sooner than you think where you can form thoughts and sentences and communicate with other people, you will feel less afraid. You will feel more excited about your daily life. You will get better at saying no to things that you don't want to do and yes to things that you do want to do. You will feel more fulfilled and more connected. And honestly, you'll finally get to be you for the first time in your whole life. Your mental illnesses will not determine how you think, how you behave, how you speak in your twenties, this decade, you will finally get to learn who you are. That's what I would say. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And where can people connect with you online? Well, if you go to copenotes.com, you will find all of the information you need. We have obviously subscriptions are on there. I have a TED talk that's on our about page where you can Google it. Our podcast is on that website as well. There's a contact form on that website if you need to get in touch with me. So that's kind of your one-stop shop. And then if you are a social media person, I am on Facebook, LinkedIn, and then my Instagram handle is at Johnny Crowder loves you because I do. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.